Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Time now for another edition of Tuesday Home Time with Jam Bartlett. On today's show, Jan speaks with Nick Rose on solutions to food insecurity, Jessica Morrison from APAN on Palestine, Alison Bronowska on human rights and shirt-fronting Australia, Tim Anderson reports back on a recent trip to Lebanon, Jacob Grek on the latest in the fight to free Julian Assange, and Tom Feebig joins us to talk about an upcoming support gig for refugees. But of course, first up, Mr Kevin Healy with The Week That Was. A week, Jane, listener, when we open with a lesson. After last week, the government picking up the much-sought-after Courage Under Fire Award for after a massive, expensive campaign by daring empl- uh, caring employers sorry, to explain how they simply can't afford to meet these profit-sapping, same-work, same-pay claims, including in many cases their own in-house labour-hire companies, the socialists displayed their usual courage under fire as they announced, yes, we may exclude the poor, struggling, great resource behemoths from the legislation because they would suffer serious profit implications if they couldn't same work, not same pay, not pay workers the same pay and conditions for the same work. The lesson here is obvious. It's time for the unemployed, the homeless, single mums, the lowest of low paid, asylum seekers imprisoned indefinitely to spend millions on a campaign to force the government to show the same courage under fire in doing what they want. But they better move fast and spend up big because they're crippling the economy. As it was reported last week, well, to quote the Troubler Aussie Capitalist Review, a cocktail of rising wages and woeful labour productivity is poised to jack up unemployment and cause businesses to replace workers with cheaper machines. So the solution is staring lazy avaricious workers in the face. If only they could see it through their myopic greed. Work twice as hard for half as much and our caring employers will love us. Although the delicate flower that is the economy is so delicate, isn't it? Despite that jack-up unemployment threat, unemployment figures fell. The very opposite of what Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Philip Lay Workers Low knows is good for the economy. Thus, Friday, predictions that less people unemployed is so bad for all of us that interest rates will have to rise again. Good news for those workers taking half their pay so they can work twice as hard, showing just how complicated is the delicate flower. So complicated, poor Phil and the reserve losses team found their losses will be even greater because a review showed they had underpaid their own workers by $1.15 million. But in fairness, Phil said they were genuinely sorry. Now, why is that, Phil? It was a mistake to undertake the review. Without it, we, we wouldn't have been sprung. Former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney described as one of the world's most respected central bankers, told us interest rates will have to remain high well into next year if we are to control inflation. 
Interesting, isn't it, that all the important people who tell us interest rates must rise, wages are too high, workers don't work hard enough, we must have more unemployment, all those important contributions to the greatest little economic order in them all don't seem to be the people they advocate should work harder for less, etc., why don't workers advocate those things? Suppose it explains why they're workers. They just don't understand. We need the filthy rich to tell us what's good for us. Like Gina Ronghart, for instance, our very filthiest rich of the filthy rich, who complained this week that the economy-destroying socialists are putting up barriers to all the investments she wants to make to make this country a better place. Barriers like red tape causing long delays, environmental and biosecurity laws, terra nullius non-people heritage laws, emission reduction policies, and to make matters worse, caring business class relations laws that are throttling great investors like Gina. What a list. Hasn't the government, hasn't society considered what good Gina could do for this country if she could but go where she likes without having to worry about the environment, about biosecurity, about the terrenalious non-people, pollute to a big heart's content and not have to worry about paying workers? It's amazing she remains so filthy rich with all those barriers timely item last week that 12 people had been pardoned after being convicted of witchcraft. Just bad luck. They were executed 400 years ago. The mills of God grind um, and the law grind slowly. Timely. For this week, two great men were victims of modern witch hunts. Former U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world's big supremo Donald Trample the poor and her, as it was, her most gracious majesty's home country supremo Boris joined the party son. Poor, innocent, all-humility Donald, revealing the investigator's wife was a Trample the poor hater. Biggest hater ever, ever. And the investigator himself? Demented. Biggest demented ever, ever. So it's hard to see how those charges can stick when Donald tells the court that. And poor Boris resigned after being shown the report of an inquiry into a few parties at Downing Street to help them get through the COVID crisis. Obviously abashed by any suggestion he knew what he thought was not a party, just might have been a party. Political assassination. Poor Boris. What thanks for their invaluable service to the economic order that is the status quo, the greatest little economic order of them all. Still, as I said last week, hope they're measuring the prison cell to make sure they can squeeze in the presidential desk. Just in case, by some remote chance, the greatest hater ever, biggest dementia, dementia ever, ever defence fails. A timely and important intervention in the voice debate from that bastion of progressive thought Trubler was he's for constitutional monarchy, God save the Charlie, pointing out they had led a successful referendum by sinking Republican hopes so they know all about these things more than anyone else. Listen to our monarchical wisdom. I won't bore you with their brilliant ideas involving postponing the whole thing other than they recommend we take note of the constitutional intentions of our founding fathers. Founding fathers. 
by inference acknowledging that Terra Nullius non-people were Terra Nullius. So the founding fathers found whatever they found, which whatever it was, obviously didn't involve women, mothers, and most certainly didn't involve the Terra Nullius non-people. Verifying the truth, Captain Cook discovered the whole place. Despite what the goody-goody black armband so-called politically correct historical revisionists say, the authors of this invaluable contribution to the debate include long-term bow and scrape, say your prayers facing London advocate David Flintstone and Daniel R. Hood, real name, listed as true blue Aussies for constitutional monarchy's young national convener. And I thought, if they reckon young people get more conservative as they grow older, what hope this bloke? We can be sure he would already know Terranullius non-people should be not seen and not heard. Like that Lydia Thorpe as Wednesdays and Thursday mornings mainstream media coverage of sexual harassment claims inferred, here she goes again. But unfortunately for them and the caring business class party and its senator involved, her claim stirred up more claims by non-Terranullius real women people who would have most Lydia Thorpe for, well, presumably for saying she was sexually harassed. As a by-the-by, don't know about you, listener, but until Wednesday, even though this van person has apparently been in the Senate for a number of years, I never knew he existed. But what a hurtful attack on our protectors of liberty, freedom and democracy, guardians of the delicate flower that is the economy, on behalf of its altruistic practitioners, the... Sorry, a police. Lydia saying she and other women don't trust them in reporting sexual assault. When there's a huge bonus like having your emails and texts and your private life splashed all over the Lord Rupert of Wapping News, very limited media. On such matters, on the death this week of former Italian Supremo Silvia Bella scotting the people, if there is an afterlife, I recommend all women in hell steer well clear. And on monarchy, Charlie's birthday notice, the highest honour, went to former socialist Polly Jenny Macklin's single mum's poor for services to inter alia paid parental leave and indigenous true blue Aussies. But, 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 but she was the minister who threw single parents under the doll into poverty. And after the socialists vehemently opposed little Johnny Howard's terrenulous intervention as minister, she became its strongest advocate honoured for doing the opposite of what she did. Finally, we put out a call asking all of the above, the Courage Under Fire Socialists, Philip, the Monarchist, Mark the Banker, Gina, Jenny, to donate to our Radiothon so we continue to give them such favourable publicity, but can't believe it. Not one of them has got back to us. So, so it looks like community radio has to depend on a different community. That way, we can continue to give Gina Reddell such favourable publicity. Good afternoon. It's 25 years since the emblematic Jabaluka blockade, yet now we see the reckless decision to join the AUKUS military pact. Nuclear-powered submarines bring the very real threat of international nuclear waste dumps and an excuse for a domestic nuclear industry in Australia. Friends of the Earth's nuclear-free art auction will celebrate decades of nuclear resistance while raising vital funds for our national nuclear-free campaign work. Join us on Friday, June the 30th from 5pm till 10pm with a 7.30pm start of the live auction at Cafe.
Catalyst Social Centre, 144 Sydney Road, Coburg. There'll be bands, a bar, kids' banner painting earlier in the night and lots of amazing artwork. For more information, go to melbournevo.org.au forward slash 2023 underscore art underscore auction. Bring your friends, spread the word and come along for a fun evening. Friends of the Earth is a 3CR supporter. With food insecurity, food poverty and hunger increasing, every effort needs to be employed to ensure that no Australians are forced to choose between eating and paying their bills as the cost of living crisis becomes deeper and deeper. One small contribution to this aim is the establishment of the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm in Preston. It's only been in operation since 2021, but already has made a significant impact for some in the community, both those who receive the food produced and the volunteers who make it all happen. But the land on which Oak Hill stands is currently up for sale and funds are urgently needed to purchase it. Although there has been a huge outpouring of love and affection for Oak Hill and a number of significant donations have been received, much more is needed. To explain what is needed and why, I spoke with Dr Nick Rose, the Executive Director of Sustain. Take you back, Nick, to 2021 right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. How did you find a little block of land in Preston? Uh, it was actually through Darabin Council. We had been operating the Melbourne Food Hub Farm at the what was then the Melbourne Innovation Centre, southern part of Darabin Parkland uh, in Alfington. And we uh, wanted to set up a second site that we had more direct involvement in yeah, we'd, we'd made that known to Darabin Council and through their sustainable food officer in their climate emergency team, they'd been um, making various inquiries, bringing a couple of different options to our attention and then, yeah, this one was, was brought to our notice and had a meeting with the Oak Hill Precinct staff member. Yeah, it went from there. She had conversations with the, the owner of the property, the Anglican Church, and, yeah, we were able to come to a, a great agreement from our perspective to have two years to to set up, um, you know, what became the Oak Hill Food Justice Farm as a you know site for community education, community connection, and growing healthy food for the local food security organisation, Diverse Darabin Information Volunteer Resources. And what did you find when you went to the site? What was there? It was was in a pretty dilapidated state. Um, just to be clear, it's um, it's a, the old St Mary's Church, which goes right back to 1860, actually, not, not the current building, but that's the you know it's been a church on that site since um, since those days. Uh, car park adjacent to the church, and then the you know the house and garden at the back that where the priests lived, the vicarage. So the bit that we wanted to use was the house and garden, and the house was it had some broken windows been squatted at different points, very dirty, lots of rubbish all around the garden and it was just, you know, very weedy and, and overgrown and, you know, it had that real feeling of neglect and abandonment. So were you able to use the house as well or was that separate? No, no, we, we've been using the house. No, the house was part of it. So we were, were able to clean up the house. So, you know, the first the first few months really were, were clean up and, you know, Taking away rubbish. Apparently, five skits worth of rubbish were uh, 
were removed and yeah, getting the place tidied up and, and so we could you know, we could use it as we are doing now as an office, getting the windows repaired and and then starting to bring in the, the growing infrastructure, the, the wicking beds and you know, making the other improvements that we've made to the to the garden over the following months. And who's your guide to know what plants to put in? Initially, we worked with a, a permaculture designer, uh, Dr. Charlie Brennan, who actually has a, his main business is in the United States, but he's a uh, old sort of contact and friend of mine from from Bellingen, and just happened to he just happened to be in Melbourne at the time. His his two sons live in Brunswick, so he was stuck in Melbourne at that time, and you know, with the, the rules in place, he was able to to work with local residents and volunteers and put a, a plan in place. He's, he's one of his sons is a landscape architect, so he, he drew the plants up with Charlie's uh, advice on plant species. So that was a uh, you know the, the the start, and then with the philanthropic funds we got from Jack Brockhoff Foundation and Benelong, we were able to employ a, a Preston local, Gemma Stefano, as uh, as an urban farmer a couple of days a week, and it was Gemma who then took it over from Charlie at the end of 2021. Through all of 2022, you know, working with uh, yeah with local groups of residents a couple of times a week and working bees. Then um, the primary school approaches Preston Primary, uh, wanting to have a you know hands-on outdoor learning uh, opportunity for their 700 students. So we we're able to employ another another Darabin local um, Shani. Uh, to come in and facilitate that one day a week. So we've got yeah, two employed urban farmers and and many volunteers. That's, that's the way it works. So you don't sell the food, you distribute mm. it in the neighbourhood. That's right. Yeah, it's not for sale. No, no, it's not. Uh, that was part of the agreement with the church that uh, the food would not be grown for sale. It's uh, donated to, as I say, through the through diverse through their weekly food hamper program that benefits about 100 families in need in Reservoir, Preston. What sort of variety of food do you produce? When we moved in, there was, I think we said there was four edible species. There was a couple of figs and a, a lemon tree, and that was about it. And now there's, I think last count was about 115 different species that we've planted. So, the, you know, mainly leafy greens, you know, kales and silver beets and, you know, lettuces. Lots of herbs. Uh, yeah, we've done we've done corn, we've done radish, growing you know some tropical plants. We're trying to demonstrate you know uh, just how many different varieties can be grown in you know the microclimates of Melbourne. So we've got bananas and taro and papaya, um, and and then a whole series of uh, bush foods as well. We've got separately to. The urban farmers that I mentioned, we've also got another young person, uh, Elliot, uh, who also works with Narrab Rangers for the Wurundjeri Heritage Corporation. And Elliot comes in and looks after our bush food plantings one afternoon a week. So we've got, I think, about 30 different bush foods in there too now as well. All very well to have all these new foods, but people know, need to know how to cook it, how to prepare it. Yes, of course, that's right. One of the programs we've been doing this year has been through some funding for Vic Health, called the Youth World Food Gardens Program, and that's been working with uh, a, a small group of uh, young people from different cultural backgrounds to, uh, you know, work together and learn about more about their cultural food traditions and grow food together and you know develop recipes and, and cook it together. So, absolutely, the 
you know, a key part of food security is using the food. Utilisation is the the term, but yeah, knowing knowing what to do with it is uh, is absolutely central. And yeah, our, our vision for the future, if we're able to to stay on the site and is get a bit more funding and actually have a you know commercial kitchen in place there and and actually do you know cooking classes and and even potentially you know people who might want to do you know small kitchen based businesses to you know to use that as a facility and you make compost and you invite the locals to bring their waste to put into the compost yes that's yep I'm glad you mentioned that Jan um, yeah we we were fortunate to get a, a circular economy grant from sustainability Victoria to develop a a composting, a local composting hub. Target is to receive about 12 tonnes of organic waste, food scraps, you know, mushroom straw, and, and other um, inputs, and then to turn that into compost. Um, so far, we've been mainly mainly partnering with the local businesses, local cafes, Tyler's Milk Bar, Discography, and others, bringing their coffee grounds and kitchen scraps, um, series fair food. But but as we go forward, yes, we, we, uh, the plan is definitely to to make it accessible to local householders. Uh, and possibly even, you know, possibly even look at getting a, a biodigester or, or something like that to, you know, to receive those volumes. Well, Nick, with all those friends and supporters and obviously a great job, why is the farm under threat? Uh, because the uh, the owners, uh, you know, told us when we took it on that, you know, it was, um, you know, for them, a, you know, their, their intention was to sell it. And it is a de- you know it's a development site. It's uh, it's owned one, which means it can be used for mixed commercial and residential use. So, you know the usual thing in Melbourne with the way the city's changing, you know, so quickly and growing would be that you know on, on a site like that, being where it is, you know, you'd, you'd put up some townhouses or apartments. You know that would be the use of the of the site. So we want to stay and continue doing what we're doing. We think it's, as you said, it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, a great example of the you know, creative and collaborative use of a site that previously was just in, in disrepair and, and, and a, you know, a bit of a, and a blight on the neighbourhood. To make it into what we've made it is you know, not something that happens that much around Melbourne and it's worth holding on to these places. So you know, our, our campaign to save Oak Hill is trying to raise the funds that you know, we need to purchase it from the Anglican Church and and continue doing what we're doing. That's uh, that's what we're trying to achieve. Are you saying that the Anglican Church is the owner still and are threatening to put you out? They are the owner, and yeah, we are on. We occupy the land, you know, on on their permission, and we understand that they wish to sell the land. So if they find a buyer who's a developer who wants to, as I say, turn it into townhouses, then everything we've created will, will be gone and it'll be steel and concrete and, you know, and glass. That would be the most likely scenario if we're not able to, yeah, mobilise the community or, or, and or find some philanthropically-minded uh, people. We've got the, the means to support us to, you know, to purchase the property and preserve it as a, as a community asset, a neighbourhood asset. Well, how is that support coming in at the moment and how long have you got? Well, we're working towards the end of this year, 2023, uh, so, you know, a bit over six months. We've had, a, you know, some really positive responses, particularly our main philanthropic um, supporter, Lord Mayor's Charitable Foundation, 
invited us to, you know, apply for a, a, a special grant uh, to, to kind of kickstart this process. Their board met at the end of April and approved a hundred thousand dollar grant for us. But that that grant is conditional on us uh, raising, you know, the rest of the funds. And we've also had a, a private supporter come in and match that uh, match that amount. So that's a couple of hundred thousand dollars to get started, and then. Through the community campaigning we've done over the last couple of weeks, people have been very generous, and we've uh, raised a bit over six thousand dollars from about, I think, about thirty contributing uh, community members so far. You know, early days, uh, the, the target's over a million dollars, so it's still a bit of a, still a bit of a hill to climb, but um, but we're on our way, and it's all about you know building momentum, and that's why I'm yeah very grateful to you for you know for giving me the time to talk about it. So there's no chance of getting the, the City of Darwin to put in some more funds or the state government? Well, yes, you'd like to think so, Jan. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the last budget was all about making cuts, wasn't it, and not mm. not spending other than the, all the big sort of infrastructure projects they're already committed to do. So we have spoken to the local MP and he's, you know, the, the word is that he's not... Not a lot of joy to be had at this point in time, at least, from the, the state government and, and I think similarly the, the council are, yeah, looking to, to make savings rather than make these kind of contributions. I think at this point we're not we're not expecting um, or going to be relying on hope from government. I think it's going to be more more from, you know, philanthropists and, and private individuals, community members that this is going to happen. Well, there's a lot of those philanthropic groups around, aren't there, that you can try and tap into? There are, yeah, that's right. There are, and there, we're certainly having, you know, conversations with them, and and that'll be, yeah, a big part of our focus over the next few months to, you know, knock on doors and and make the case, and you know, just uh, just you know, be open to unexpected approaches as well, which which can sometimes happen too. Well, anyone listening who might be considering giving you a hand and giving the people of Reservoir and Preston a hand, how do they go about it? They can just visit uh, our, our website, sustain.org.au, and it's there on the front page, or you know, just Google Save Oak Hill campaign, um, it will come up. And yeah, we've made it very easy. You can just choose whatever amount you're comfortable with. It's all fully tax deductible. We're a registered charity, so over $2 is fully, fully tax deductible. Any and every donation, as small or as much as people feel comfortable contributing, is, is extremely welcome. And you're very welcome to visit us. Really invite people to come down and and see the place for themselves and see what they're contributing to and, and meet us and talk about what we're doing there and what our dreams are for that place. And the exact address is? 233 233 Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R Street in Preston. It's uh, just on near the corner from uh, with Plenty Road in what's called the Oak Hill Precinct. Is the Anglican Church planning to get rid of the church as well? I understand that. Yeah, their their intention is the whole the whole large site, two thousand six hundred square meters. It's all on the market for sale. I understand. Just think what a shelter for homeless people could be with that big church. Exactly. Yeah, it's um, you know with the, the challenges that people are facing and the social crisis we're in, Jan, to have um, yeah have buildings sitting empty. It doesn't seem right, does it? That's for sure. Thanks very much, Jan. Appreciate it. Thank you. And if you can help save the Oak Hill Justice Farm, please get onto the webpage of Sustain, S-U-S-T-A-I-N. And I was speaking with the Executive Director, 
Dr. Nick Rose. You are what you eat, and you are what what you eat. Eats. Local Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Please join us Sunday, June 25th at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. Speaking now with the Executive Officer of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, Jessica Morrison. You believe this steady progress being happening in support for Palestinian rights? Absolutely. Look, when we're working on Palestine, it is really hard to see progress and it's easy to be cynical. I mean, there's horrific happening, horrific violence happening towards Palestinians, the apartheid policies that are being implemented by Israel. Like what, what we should be doing is incredibly decisive, as decisive as we were with Ukraine. But even though we're not seeing that sort of decisive action, we've got lots of great signs that the tide is shifting. I mean, in the last year, we've seen some small but very significant things that have been shifted by this government. Most recently, the aid commitment has been increased um, 2.9 million extra in this last budget for non-government organisations working in Palestine. And also, with all the attacks on the UN agency that provides support for Palestinian refugees, this government has restored and locked in funding for that organisation. So that's great. There's been a shift in UN voting, acknowledging the illegality of settlements, recognising Palestinian rights. So there's been... And and also, of course, what, what was decided in terms of Jerusalem. The Morrison government wanted to unilaterally decide that part of Israel belonged to... and part of Jerusalem belonged to Israel, but this government's brought us in. So there's been... You know, some really significant small things that have happened in the last year. But the last few weeks have been even more significant. In what sense? Well, the Australian Greens, by consensus, so with support of the Jewish Greens, Palestine for, for Palestinian Greens and the whole party, have just um, released a brand new policy that we think actually just might be the best policy in the world for Palestinian rights. Well, it talks about Israel's ongoing colonisation um, of Palestine. It talks about how actually the mantra that we've had for so many years of two-state solution, both parties going back to the negotiating table and all that sort of stuff, it's put that to the side because it's like that isn't working. And actually what we need to do is realise that we've got a settler colonial occupation that has been belligerent in holding back Palestinian self-determination. And so we need to be much more decisive in our actions, including looking at, at um, boycotting particular far-right figures and, and being much more clear about what needs to happen. Also, talking about the crime of apartheid. Absolutely. So, you know, 10 years ago, Palestinians were screaming that this is apartheid. I mean, they were living under it. They could absolutely see 
that, you know, there were two peoples on a particular lot of land and they were living under two completely different systems, whether they were in the West Bank, Gaza, Jerusalem or Israel itself, that Palestinians were experiencing systematic discrimination. So they've been screaming about it for years, but now actually the international community has come on board and is starting to say, actually, there is very clear evidence that the crime of apartheid is being perpetrated by Israel, that the policies are absolutely clearly apartheid. So everyone from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty um, to the Harvard Law School to Israel's own human rights groups are, are, are increasingly confident about using this word apartheid. So it's been fantastic to see the Australian Greens also not shy away from that conclusion. Also not shying away from the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. They've made a statement on that in support of not supporting of it. We need the, the federal government to follow. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, you know, everybody stands against anti-Semitism. It's an absolute given. We're, you know, we're a justice movement, so we're a justice movement for everybody. And so any form of racism, including anti-Semitism, is abhorrent. But the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is being used as a political tool by incredibly partisan groups to be able to shut down criticism, legitimate criticism of the policies of the State of Israel. And so unfortunately they've been able to kind of use this as a Trojan horse to push through in so many different ways. But the Australian Greens have said, no, this isn't the tool. This isn't the tool that we should use. So, yeah, it has been fantastic to see the Greens, um, including the, the Jewish Greens, very clearly saying the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism is not the way for us to fight anti-Semitism. Need some more pressure on the Labor Party. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, you know, it's they signed off on it set some years ago, not through a consensus process. And look... Um, we're really disappointed that they haven't revisited that, but hopefully they will. Looking at the increasing loss of life in the West Bank, though, and also in Gaza, we don't hear about Gaza because Gaza is locked down by air, sea, yeah. land, and, and it's very difficult to find out what life is like in Gaza. Oh, and it is horrific. I mean, the UN said that Gaza would be unlivable by 2020, and now we're three years past that point. Um, it is a slow-moving and horrific tragedy that unfortunately only hits the headlines when people are being bombed. But, I mean, in Gaza, like more than 95% of the water is undrinkable because, is, uh, you know, Israel has bombed water treatment plants. It has held back all the desalinisation processes and it, it's a horrific thing. I mean, water is the very basic of life. So to, for 95% of the water, um, it's barely okay to shower in, far less to drink. So just like that very foundation is horrific. You know, there's medicine shortages, there's electricity shortages, um, there's people dying in Gaza because they can't access, you know, basic treatment, cancer treatment that we all take for granted because Israel won't let in radiotherapy kind of equipment. Um, so it is horrific. What is happening in Gaza is horrific. 70% of people are reliant on food aid and the UN agency that provides food aid is in a financial crisis and not being able to provide the basic services that it wants. 
and that it needs. So, I mean, it's, it's now into its 16th year, this horrific blockade that's been maintained by both Israel as well as Egypt. One of those things that stagnated, but it absolutely needs to be lifted. I believe it was a strategic move by Israel to move their people out of there to take pressure off them and then the world can forget about Gaza. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And look, you know, UN reports say the siege of Gaza, and, you know, you think of the siege, it's a medieval term to try and starve a population out, to take back control. This siege of Gaza was clearly implemented as a collective punishment against the people of Gaza for a fair and free democratic election where they did elect Hamas, and this has been the punishment. So, yes, a, a whole lot of settlers did move out of Gaza, but most of them moved to the very edge of Gaza and now sit in villages that surround Gaza. And at the same time, we've seen it's now up to three quarters of a million settlers on this tiny bit of land that was supposed to be the West Bank um, and was supposed to be a Palestinian state. I mean, we're talking about Israel, the whole of Israel-Palestine is a third of the size of Tasmania. Like, it's very small. So you think of a third of Tassie, if you move three quarters of a million people in, dotted in strategic places on hilltops, on water aquifers, on main highways between areas, you can see what's happened. So absolutely, I think commentators are under no doubt that the withdrawal of settlers out of out of Gaza was a tactic to help support their broader strategy. Well, looking at what's happening in the West Bank with the ongoing killing by not only the Defence Force, as they call themselves, but also the settlers, mm. and you see, you know, three-year-old kids shot in the head. Oh, it's just so horrific. It's so horrific. I mean, look, a, a military occupation is inherently brutal and violent. You can't have a military occupation without violence. That's what it's all about. But the last 18 months have just seen such a terrible escalation of violence against Palestinians. So last year was the deadliest year in the West Bank since the UN kept records. And now we've already seen almost as many people killed in the first half of this year as there were last year. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing settlers on rampages, destroying olive groves, attacking, you know, burning cars, attacking houses, and, yeah, violently assaulting Palestinians. And the Israeli military seems to be incredibly trigger-happy. You know, as you say, there was a two-year-old child who was shot in the head in a car by an Israeli sniper. I mean, you know, these are, these are well-trained military with incredibly sophisticated weaponry to be able to shoot a two-year-old child in the head which is one of 27 children that the israeli military have killed this year i mean things are horrific and you know so we, we were in in parliament last week and talking to parliamentarians and one of the things we we were saying is why is there such exceptionalism towards Israel? Why is there a bit of a wink and a nod, which is so different how we, than how we've dealt with Russia's invasion of Ukraine? You know, we've been incredibly decisive as an international community in saying, no, you can't take, take land by force. But Palestinians have had their land being taken by force for at least 75 years and counting. It's been horrific. When you approach mm. parliamentarians and with that point of view, about you know, why why Palestine's different, what answers do you get? 
when you confront people with that? I think, I mean, politicians are politicians. They understand the nature of international politics and that we're very used to condemning Russia. Um, you know, we've had a Cold War dynamic with them for a long time. But Israel has been seen as our friend. So I actually think it's watching the penny drop that actually Israel, who Australia as a country has perceived as a good mate, is in acting in terribly badly. And so I, I think parliamentarians are having to respond to the fact that Australia sees Israel as like a state that's com committing atrocities, which is very different to how the political class is used to seeing Israel. How many friends of Palestine are there in Parliament? I think we're moving towards at least a third of the Australian Parliament would consider themselves at least somewhat sympathetic of Palestine. I mean, we had an event with uh, Gareth Evans, the former foreign minister, last week in Parliament, and, you know, we had more parliamentarians there than we've ever seen before. Um, and we're seeing, you know, up there was a National Party member who was very clearly talking about Israel's apartheid policies, you know, and we certainly have friends who've stood up for Palestine in this, this current parliament who are independents, who are nationals, who are Labor, and certainly many Greens. So more and more there is this, you know, we've had a groundswell in Australia for many years. You know, the Australian population has been horrified by what, what's happening in Palestine. And I think finally we're seeing parliamentarians start to catch up. And um, they've also seen the footage of Palestinians being killed. They've also seen, you know, what's been happening with the settlements. So I think parliamentarians are, are, are moving more and more. And, of course, our parliament's different to what it was 10 years ago. I mean, we've got a whole lot of people who are conviction politicians, if you like, or people who've gone into that place to make significant change and try and really shake up some of those entrenched power dynamics that have kept people like the Palestinians being hidden from the parliament. Before we go on to Gareth Evans, I'd like to just focus for a moment on the dearth of money that's coming into UNRWA and the World Food Program. Mm. And a lot of that money mm. is coming from a lot of that money is coming from Western donors. And mm. why are they allowing this to happen? I mean they can see what's happening and yet they're not supporting the people of Palestine. Well I th I think it's you know, Ukraine is sucking a lot of money. That the world has been convinced to go into this humongous war effort in Ukraine, and that's costing a lot of money, and it's also affecting lots of international dynamics in terms of funding and and you know what's happening with with oil and so forth. So, I mean, five years ago, we saw lots of ideological decisions to drop funding to the UN body that was funding Palestine, particularly in the US, which is its biggest funder, and Australia. But what's happening in the last few years is actually it's European donors um, who are just seeing budget squishes. So it isn't an ideological decision. Nobody's cutting their funding to UNRWA, which is great. We've moved past that kind of vindictive attacks on the UN body, but we're moving into a place where, you know, just people, countries have got less money to allocate and, you know, there's these other crises that are taking their attention terrible for Palestinians because they don't want to be reliant on food aid either. This is not how the Palestinians stuck in Gaza or in refugee camps in, in Syria or Lebanon or Jordan. Like that. This isn't how they want to live. They want to live with their freedom and dignity. So this is always only supposed to be a short-term 
mechanism. It's just that Israel has frustrated for so many decades now Palestinian self-determination that Palestinians are still reliant on handouts. Well, let's talk about Gareth Evans, honorary professor at the ANU. He addressed the Parliamentary Friends of Palestine, as you said, in Canberra. What did you have to say? He wanted to systematically make the case for the recognition of Palestine. So it's been five years now since, um, or nine, five years since the Labor Party committed to the recognition of Palestine as something that they would make priority when they were next in government. It hasn't yet happened. And so Gareth Evans was saying, okay, for anybody who thinks there might be legal, moral or political reasons why we shouldn't recognise Palestine, let me go through systematically to say that there is no reason not to do this. So he was providing heaps of support to those within the Labor Party who are advocating that the time is now for them to implement this policy. Perhaps he should have been speaking to the whole parliament rather than just the Friends of Palestine. Absolutely. We weren't quite able to organise that ourselves. <laughs> but look, he, he's now published his speech um, in the conversation. Um, we've certainly circulated to every federal and state parliamentarian in this country so that everybody knows. I mean, the recognition of Palestine has already been done by 139 other countries and Australia is way behind. Um, so now all of the Australian Parliament does know that the case is being made and there's no reason for Australia not to join the 70% of countries that have already recognised Palestine. Well, Jessica, it's great to hear you absolutely enthused and upbeat about the situation at the moment. Yeah, look, it's, it's really easy to be cynical about politics because, you know, they're nowhere near as brave as we need to be. But having just come back from Canberra and talked to lots of people who are really committed to do everything they can in this current political climate, it does give a little bit of strength to our arm to say, no, actually, we're on the right track, not moving as fast, but we are moving in the right direction. So that's been some cause for encouragement. And you need some more support to keep up that work. Absolutely. APAN's a membership-driven organisation. We're currently undertaking a membership drive. We'd be delighted if any of the 3CR listeners who aren't already a member of the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network could jump on and become a member. I mean, practically, we need, we need money and we need financial support. And, you know, 3CR listeners have been part of the groundswell for decades that have got us to this point that parliamentarians have seen and heard from so many of us who've written letters and attended demos and, and kept on to our elected representatives and to our media. Like 3CR listeners, this, this isn't a new struggle. So, yeah, if anybody's in the position to be able to sign up as a financial member or if you're not already on our mailing list, we've always got actions that people can join. We'd love for people to get involved because we are making a difference. Absolutely. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Dan. And, of course, Jessica Morrison is the Executive Officer of APAN, Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. No to nuclear submarines. Come to the public forum to hear why Australia should reject the plan to spend $368 billion on the AUKUS Defence Alliance. 
Speakers include former Environment Minister Peter Garrett, Arthur Roris of the South Coast Labor Council, Medical Association for Prevention of War Vice President Dr. Margie Beavis, and AMWU State Secretary Tony Mavramatis. Chaired by the Australian Conservation Foundation's Dave Sweeney, this forum is on Friday the 23rd of June at 6pm at the Victorian Trades Hall in Carlton. The event is free. To book your tickets, head to trybooking.com and search for nuclear submarines. The No AUKUS Coalition Victoria is a 3CR supporter. I'm joined once again by Dr. Alison Bronoska, AM, former diplomat, author and academic and president of the Australian for War Powers Reform. Alison, two articles recently you've written for Pearls and Irritations. The first you've titled Shirt Fronting Australia. Some other countries that think they have a very good record on human rights and various other aspects of, say, international law, when you look at it closely, and few Australians do, um, it doesn't look quite so good. Uh, when I referred to shirt fronting, I was thinking, of course, of Tony Abbott and his bad behaviour towards President Clinton uh, in Brisbane years ago. Behaviour was aggressive and rude and counterproductive. But when it was based on the idea, I suppose, uh, that he shared with many of his colleagues and successors, that uh, Australia has a right to assert these sorts of things, because Australia is a democracy and defends freedom and human rights, whereas President Putin doesn't. Now, when you look more closely at what Australia has done and is continuing to do, the record doesn't look nearly so good. And uh, in particular, we are hovering at the moment, the government is hovering, on the brink of changing backwards its resolution in the UN on Palestine, which we, in recent years, have, on which we have abstained. And now uh, they're being pressed very hard by the Jewish lobby in Australia to vote against, which we used to do under the coalition. Now, that's only one aspect. The government of Israel is one of the worst offenders uh, against human rights in respect particularly of the Palestinian people, but for us to support them means that we're complicit in that sort of thing. But Australia isn't only engaging with countries like that who infringe human rights. We do it ourselves. Last year, you'll probably remember, after several warnings, the annual inspection of the International Human Rights Commission in Australia uh, was not allowed to... Uh, visit various parts of various states, and so they withdrew. And Australia now faces the prospect, it hasn't been decided quite yet, of being the only country in the OECD to receive a negative report from the Human Rights Commission. And that is a real blot on our international reputation. It's not sufficiently known in Australia how important this stuff is. People who don't know or care about the United Nations or the multilateral system, just think, oh, well, you know, that's just a talk shop where a whole lot of people, unelected dictators, chat about things and nothing happens. Well, it's not true. 
because the influence that middle-sized countries like us can wield at the UN and through its international agencies is really considerable. And in fact, it's the only independent area in which we can use such influence, or rather use it independently. So all of these things, it struck me, needed to be thought about. And while the Labour government elected in May last year, has done a lot of things that it promised to do on the domestic front and is achieving some of them quite creditably. On the international front, I'm afraid the progress is not nearly so commendable and I'm disappointed if they are going to reverse the vote on Palestine and I'm disappointed that they haven't done something about human rights and our record in Australia. I'm also disappointed that we're hovering on the brink of losing the international heritage listing of the Great Barrier Reef, it disappoints me too that we're not doing nearly as well as we should be doing on climate change. So all of these things where the world looks to Australia with a new government, hoping that things will improve, some of those observers may be disappointed. Well, we only hope too that the Labour Party will do something, I'm not sure that they can, about the reputation of the IDF. Well, that too, of course. And that puts us in an even worse position because, well, what some members of the SAS are accused of. And that is a, a terrible block on Australia's reputation. The only good side to that is that we did, over a long time, I must say, conduct the right sorts of inquiries, and those are continuing because there will always be something more to inquire about, including whether there are other people who may have committed war crimes, apart from those whose names we have heard, and at least we have done that. Now, that's our obligation in international law, because if we didn't, the International Criminal Court would have a right to interpose in Australia and ask the leaders who ordered those tweets, and, you know, that means political leaders and generals and, and down the command, line of command, to appear before the National Criminal Court as criminals themselves. So a country that is aware of war crimes must prosecute them itself or else face that consequence. People are scornful of the International Criminal Court because they say it only, only attacks dictators in certain countries, but for Australia to be exposed to that kind of investigation would be an enormous humiliation. So fortunately, and this is the only good aspect of it, Australia is doing the right thing in that regard. And of course, Alison, while we've been talking about these aspects of Australian society, it's because of our criticism of other countries. And when we are critical of other countries or when people in Australia demand that we go and raise human rights issues with other countries, we should always be aware, and, and I hope that our ministers and others who have to do this will always preface their remarks by saying, of course, your internal affairs are your own, just as ours are. We have problems in various areas, just as you do. We understand your problems. We hope that you understand ours. And we would be most interested in knowing how you propose to deal with whatever it is. 
um, your problem with the Uyghurs, for instance, or your problem with the Rohingyas, or whatever it may be. And when that then defuses the opportunity of those on the other side, pointing the finger at us and saying, well, what about your indigenous people? What about your refugees and asylum seekers? What about the people who have been locked up in detention centres for years and years and years and their cases have been stalled time and again and time and again, showing a great long waiting list going nowhere while these people become suicidal in despair? These are the sorts of human rights issues of which Australians ought to be conscious when they demand that we go and say things loudly to other leaders. The second article that you wrote this week, Alison, what you called a high-wire performance by Albanese at the Shangri-La Dialogue event, but unable to complete the manoeuvre successfully? Why wasn't he able to? I think he was able to manoeuvre it successfully in terms of the public relations that it achieved. Uh, He had a prominent place in the dialogue agenda this time, and People were, would have been interested, I think, to hear what the Prime Minister, whom they haven't heard before, was going to say, and hoping, I suppose, to get some perhaps indications of new directions that Australia was going to take. And in my article, I suggested numerous ones of those that he might have considered. And when I listed them, uh, six or, or more of them, I came to the conclusion that only the first might get a tentative yes from the audience, and that was, has Australia's approach to Asia changed? I was prepared to guess that, to some extent, it has. In other words, tentatively, yes. And that is because the government, the new government, has moved away from being as dismissive of Asia or of countries in Asia with which the coalition didn't agree as it could be. And so Albanese moved in that direction, found the middle ground, talked to people in his speech as if Australia really does have a vested interest in the well-being and progress of our neighbourhood instead of it being neglected in favour of the US and the UK, which our, which his predecessors certainly did. You'll remember, of course, years and years ago that John Howard said Australia doesn't have to change to be who it is in Asia. That was heard loud and clear across the region, and that characterised the behaviour of the coalition for years afterwards. All ideas about Australia being, quote, an Asian country went out the window. There was no further mention of that. There still isn't. The idea that Australia has much to gain and much to lose in Asia was something that I think um, Albanese did not get across. The problem for me in what he said, and this is why the other possibilities that I thought of didn't come through in his speech, is that Australia might need to say that we want to take a different approach to our region because our situation is different from that of our American ally. The Americans are on the other side of the Pacific and they can take their bat and ball and guns and tanks and go back there at any time they wish. Australia remains where we are and we have to get on with our neighbours till the end of time. And let's hope that's 
longer rather than shorter. The important difference for us is that we have a vested interest in the well-being of this region, whereas the United States, quite frankly, doesn't. The only interest that policymakers in America have in Asia is to make sure that that America remains the top dog, the hegemonic power, and that is what they want. Previous governments in Australia have endorsed that and said, yes, that's what they want too, for America to be top dog everywhere, and that therefore makes Australia safe. Well, in fact, I think the opposite is true. Not only is is the United States not going to remain hegemon because China is out-competing it in many ways already and will continue to so, but also because it's not in Australia's interest for that to be the case. We have enormous amount of economic and political interest vested in China. And for us to erode that in order to make more space for the United States seems to me to be the silliest thing that anybody could think of. And I would invite the realist Henry Kissinger to find any good reason why we should. The only time that we hear from the Americans about how we should do this is when people like here a couple of years ago, the Chicago professor, think of it in one moment, when he came to Australia and a couple of years ago said, you have a choice. You're with us or you're against us. And if you're against it, it'll be the worst for you. This was Mia Shana, Professor Mia Shana. And Australians in the audience went, huh? And sort of laughed. But it wasn't a joke. He meant it. And he was stating the case much more boldly than some others. But the case remains the same for all of them. And you could say all this rubbish that they keep on talking about sovereignty and independence. Yes, and when you say they, we do. Um, in, in, in recent weeks and months, I don't know why it is, but you know how it is in Canberra. People get a, a buzzword and everybody uses it. Like, for instance, the international rules-based order, one that sets my teeth on edge. But people aren't using that quite as much now as they used to. But they're saying sovereignty and national security all the time. Sovereignty and independence. I tried to argue in my article that that is exactly the opposite of what we have. In fact, we have progressively eroded our sovereignty with this AUKUS agreement, but before it, with the Defence Strategic Reviews, going back to 2012, when we effectively handed over to the United States permission to put its weaponry and its people on Australian soil without any control by the Australian government of what they did at all. And might I just insert there the, the interesting case that's going on right now in Papua New Guinea, which has in its constitution that it will not allow other countries to have a military presence on the soil of PNG. Now, we don't have that in our constitution, unfortunately, but they do. And they're having a lot of trouble getting pressure from us and from the Americans to have the same sort of thing as we've got. That is, American weapons, American personnel in Australia without being controlled by the Australian government at all. So much for sovereignty. The Papua New Guineans have got more sovereignty than we have. 
and more independent than we have. And we were the ones who engineered Papua New Guinea's independence. It's extraordinary the antiquated position in which Australia remained. Back in 2012, there was not a parliamentary debate about that and no parliamentary debate about AUKUS? None. And, of course, there is no parliamentary debate about how we go to war, as I have said many times to your faithful listeners. And as long as that is the case, we will, we could be in a position in which the United States, for instance, using its Tomahawk missiles and the submarines that are going to be based in Australia and its aircraft that are going to be in the Northern Territory and all its troops there, would actually, if they so chose, launch an attack on, say, China in the South China Sea from Australia without any permission from the Australian government at all. And that would then implicate Australia in a war in which the Chinese would naturally retaliate against Australia. So you see why it was that Malcolm Fraser in 2014, was it, his book called Dangerous Allies, came to the conclusion that the greatest threat to Australia's security is the US alive. We have actually now compounded that and made it work because for as long as this is the case, and it will be forever because we've now allowed them to put this stuff there and they won't take it away, have now put ourselves in an extremely dangerous situation. I was talking to a prominent ABC front person yesterday in Canberra and she said, oh yes, Australian people don't care about it. I said, well, what, what will they do when there is such a war, when there is such an attack? Will they say, oh, how indeed, and I was talking there with Dr. Alison Bronowski, former diplomat, author, academic, and president of Australians for War Powers Reform. The American military has unfettered access to any in Australia. And really, we need a massive global campaign to drive the private sector out of the arms industry. It is insane that we have the largest industry in the world where there is a private vested interest in what? War. We want peace. We want to respect people in other countries, not to invade their countries. What it does do is put Australia in America's front line against China. This is a war that they're actually gearing up for. It's just awful to even say that. Building nuclear submarines is an act of aggression and war. No to war. No to nuclear submarines. No to AUKUS. 3CR Radiothon. Show your support during June 2023. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Dr. Tim Anderson has recently visited Lebanon to attend two international conferences, which we'll hear about a little later. But first, Tim, last time you visited Lebanon, reported that the economic crisis was impacting greatly on the people. What did you find this time? Is it surviving? Is that the word to describe the situation? Yeah, it's very difficult. The, the, The people have fallen into poverty 
very rapidly after the financial collapse. It's not easy because the one problem that they've got that a, lot, a number of other states don't have is that uh, they don't really have a functioning state. So there's this paralysis, more or less, in the body politic where, for example, they could get energy from Iran, but there's a section, a, a minority section, but nevertheless a section in the elite of Lebanon that refuses to have anything to do with Iran. Yet, on the other side, the promises of the US to help them with energy are being permanently delayed. There's an article on that in the cradle just recently. You know, they're, they're stuck in this in-between situation where they can't really advance with new alliances, you know, whereas the rest of the region, indeed the rest of the world, there's a whole range of new alliances opening up at this stage. Where do people go for support? They go to their communities, really, because the state... I mean, there was... Um, last year, there was a some sort of breakthrough where Hezbollah, the resistance group, was... Um, getting oil through Syria into Lebanon and without um, without disruption, without being blockaded by the Israelis or the US. And so there, there has been the entry of some oil into, into Lebanon, but it's expensive and, and incomes are extremely low, basically, because the currency is, what was there about two weeks ago, the, the Lebanese lira is almost 100000 to a dollar. And a few years ago, it was 1500 to the dollar, you know, so it means that Prices have gone crazy. The problem is Lebanon, you see, doesn't produce a huge amount in terms of its basic necessities, unlike Iran, unlike Syria, for example. They're a trading state or a community. They've always been a trading hub that's dependent on finance and trade and so on. And that hurts them a lot in the, in the current situation. What about food security or insecurity? Food security is a big problem because, as I said, the, the culture of farming is widespread. The, the basic needs, most of them are imported, you know, so there, there is farming in Lebanon, but it's not, it's not enough for the requirements and it doesn't satisfy all the people in the, in the towns and cities, basically. So food is, is also really expensive. So people fall back. They depend on their communities because Lebanon was set up by the French as a sectarian state, they call it confessional. It means that everything is allocated according to your religion. You have to. It's a compulsory that you more or less wear your religious sect on your chest, more or less. And if there's a problem, you, you go to the more or less the capos, you know, the, the mafia bosses of each, each religious sect to get some sort of charity or some sort of benefit there. That's more or less the social security there, with some, with some minor exceptions. You know, there are some health clinics that have been set up and are available to all, you know, um, but at sort of very low cost. But by and large, there's a great deal of reliance on the religious communities because that's the way the, the, the country is organised. Are there any such things as urban gardens or people growing food in their courtyards or on maybe on the top of their buildings? Yes, there is. And a lot of people also, of course, have links to the village, but, you know, it's a semi-traditional sort of society where even people who live in the cities identify with the village, so they they do have some access. But it's it's quite limited, as I said, you know, because the extent of agriculture, even if it even if there is some in the city, and there's not a lot in the city, it's not a not a huge culture of of urban agriculture. But um, it, it's not enough to meet the needs. Well, what is the variety of food when a, a family might be sitting down for a meal? What's available to them? Can they afford? Well, the, the well, I mean, there is food there, but it's expensive according to the incomes. You know, the, the basis is bread. Bread's a, a staple in, in the whole region, in the Levant, in, in Palestine, Lebanon, Syria. But unlike Syria, where bread is subsidised, where people's incomes are still very low in Syria, 
the state subsidised the certain basic foods, you know, bread, rice, sugar, and so on, a bit like Venezuela, really. But in in Lebanon, people pay the market price. There are some cooperatives there. People have slightly more affordable food at cooperatives, and there are there is fresh fruit, there are fresh vegetables, but it's the the problem is that um, everything's run on money, and and uh, with the the value of the Lebanese lira now, that makes things very difficult. There are reports that the problems for Lebanon are exacerbated by the number of Syrian refugees in the country. One report I read said 25% of the population are now Syrian refugees. Is that correct? Yes, more or less. There's a permanent, a very large population, millions of, of Syrian refugees still there because, and here's the problem, it's more or less a, the refugees have become a political tool in Turkey and in Lebanon as well because they receive payments from UN agencies and NGOs to stay where they are and not go home, basically. And on the other hand, the blockade, the US blockade of Syria is still in place, so there isn't any real um, funds for people to rebuild their homes and, and, and go back and reconstruct, basically, because the US and the EU, while claiming there is no economic war on Syria, effectively they have an economic war, a siege, which doesn't allow them to rebuild. I spoke to um, the vice uh, foreign minister of, of Syria about a year ago, and he was saying, we, that is to say the Syrian government, have been saying to the UN, why don't you give them a one-off payment to go home instead of paying them to stay where they are, basically. That's the, that's the problem. People do, the refugees uh, on the Lebanese side of the border are being paid by UN agencies and other NGOs to stay where they are, effectively. And it's no real solution because... Um, of this blockade on the, on the reconstruction in Syria after the war. And then there are reports that Syria won't allow them to come home. No, that's not true. They're welcome back, and there have been a number of programs uh, over the years that have taken back some hundreds of thousands, um, particularly in the north, but also from Lebanon. But now that's stalled because, as I say, there's a type of paralysis in international politics. Um, these These people are really captured by international politics, which is refusing reconstruction aid for for Syria but um, allowing it for to keep the refugees where they are this is this is a real dilemma for those people and then of course Syria has been playing host reluctantly to a, gr- a huge number of Palestinians over the years and with UNRWA saying they're going to cut their funding it looks as though the situation for those people is becoming even more dire Yes, well, um, you're right to say that there's, a, there's many hundreds of thousands of Palestinians in Syria, up to three generations of them, who are treated effectively as permanent residents. So they have, unlike in Lebanon, where the Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, many, many, many thousands of Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, um, there's a whole lot of categories of employment that are blocked to them. In other words, they have very limited rights as residents in, in Lebanon, and so... Therefore, they're pushed into the informal sector, into small business and so on. And around suburban Shatila, you know, those, those famous suburbs of and now suburbs of Beirut that were subject to the massacres by the Zionists 40 years ago. It's full of small business and small markets and so on. And, but also there's discrimination because people accuse them of being involved in gangs, you know, robbing things, robbing bicycles and things like that because they are really very second class in Lebanon. In Syria, they're treated as residents, more or less equal as citizens, but they, they leave open the, the identity question so that they are regarded as not Palestinians anymore, that they, they still 
had the aspiration to go home to Palestine. Uh, indeed, when I was in Lebanon, there was a whole conference on the appointing ambassadors to be, to the refugees from Palestine and affirming their right to to go home in Palestine and resume their home. But in the meantime, in Syria, they are they have access to uh, employment and all sorts of things, um, including subsidised food and so on. In Syria, in, in Lebanon, things are tougher. And how many of the refugees that are coming out of Syria into Lebanon are actually Palestinian? Some of them are too, that's right, because um, in, in many parts of Syria, there's, um, you know, they call them camps, but they're not really camps. It's um, even in occupied Palestine itself, you've got the same thing. There are so-called camps of refugees, but they've become suburbs. And in the past, UNRWA, the, the, um, you know, the refugee agency for West Asia, has built these type of what were considered to be temporary buildings, like more or less um, concrete cubes, three metres by three metres, and stack them on top of each other, and you've got just a, uh, a poor person's housing, basically. So, for example, in uh, one I visited in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, in occupied Palestine, you've got uh, some of the outer suburbs like Haisha, basically refugee camps. Similarly, in, in Damascus, in Syria, for example, the big southern suburb of Yarmouk, which was almost destroyed during the war, that was the same sort of thing. It was effectively a, a large suburb of, of southern Damascus. Then you've got um, the same thing in Aleppo. You've got whole areas which are effectively uh, Palestinian camps. But then again, you've got intermarriage. There's a lot of intermarriage in Lebanon and Syria because they're the same people, really. Is that happening with these refugees that have come across from Syria? Are they, in a sense, integrating in Lebanon or not? Really, not so much because at the moment they're in the the you know the old what you what you really imagine as camps you know literally tents tent cities for example tent cities um they are in the in Beirut also but in uh, across the border you've got these very big tent cities with UN tarpaulins and so on you know that, that really it's very very limited sort of um, facilities that they have. Two conferences you attended. Tim, who was there, and what were the what were the conferences? Yeah. So the first one was the the conference of the global campaign for um, in support of the choice of resistance. The group called Tajamu, the global gathering, and that has expanded. It began as a support for the resistance in Lebanon to the Israeli occupation, and um, then it expanded to an Arabic and Islamic group, which included a lot of. Middle East and North African representatives. And now, two years ago, it expanded to calling itself the Global Gathering in support of the choice of resistance. The idea is it's the choice of people to resist Zionism and imperialism and colonialism, basically. And it's grown significantly. The, um, the meeting just south of Beirut um, recently was, um, was the first one to include a very large group of Latin Americans there which is important. The, the African representation has expanded, but the Latin American representation is very important because you've got a lot of experience, post-colonial experience, with neocolonialism in Latin America, of course. You, know, you see it today with the interventions in Nicaragua and, and Venezuela and the, the blockade against Cuba and so on. So those Latin Americans made a very important contribution to this conference, but the conference was really... It's really trying to consolidate and promote the idea that even if people in other countries, including Lebanon, but also in Western countries, are scared of the idea of resistance, but we should recognise that people have the right to resist 
when their rights are being violated, like the Palestinians. And this is important, for example, in relation to Palestine, because a lot of people in Western countries say, oh, I support Palestine, but they're horrified when someone talks about Palestinian armed resistance, which is really their right under international law, you know, to oppose by any means, by any appropriate means, apartheid regimes and colonization. But they don't. It's, it's, it's sort of like a red line in Western culture where they sum it up by saying, by calling all Palestinian resistance Hamas and then, you know, terrorism of some sort. So this group, the Global Gathering, is about trying to say to people, listen, you have to support the right of people to choose to resist in these circumstances and not just be hopeless victims. Talk a little bit about what these people from these different countries contributed to the conference. Yeah, so, for example, we've got um, representatives from South Africa who had visited Lebanon some years ago. I met with them when they first came over and linked up with um, Tajamo. And they, of course, bring their experience. And their representative is um, a man who's the head of the... Now, that's important because they wanted to support the political prisoners in Palestine. As you may know, there's thousands of political prisoners, including many, many hundreds, without any charge or trial, just held in the Israeli jails, basically. There's no due process in the in the Israeli system. The courts are rigged. Um, so they came to support Palestinian prisoners. But they also had lessons, of course, in terms of how they had an armed struggle. You know, it's, it's often not widely recognised, but Nelson Mandela was in prison for supporting the armed struggle, uh, the Umkonte Wesizwe in, in South Africa. And so converting their struggle into the dismantling of the apartheid system in South Africa has important lessons for Palestine. So there's that type of experience. Then you've got the, the Latin American experience, as I said. You've got people from Iraq, from Iran, uh, all, of the, all of the independent countries that are really struggling against the, the global imperial system that denies people self-determination even long after the colonial era is thought to have ended. So it's a, a civil society group which is which is sharing those ideas and promoting those ideas. And what was your contribution? I'm a writer, as you know, so I'm my latest book, which is coming out soon in the US, is called um, West Asia After Washington. So it's trying to analyse, interpret and um, promote the ideas of resistance and self-determination in, in all those different contexts. Okay. The second conference, what was the focus for that? The second conference was from a, um, a group which is established in Lebanon, which is called the Global Campaign for the Right to Return to Palestine. And it's a group that promotes the right of the refugees to return because, for example, uh, if you look at the detail of how Palestine will be liberated, it's not only a question of dismantling apartheid. In other words, at the moment, you've got about 50-50 Arab-Palestinian population, which are, which are either have no citizenship at all or uh, second or third class citizens and you have Israeli Jews who are the first class citizens. So you have this discriminatory structure there. But even if that was removed tomorrow, even if the equal citizenship was, was um, somehow bestowed on all of the residents of historic Palestine, you would still have several problems from colonization. One of them is land, the land theft. You know now, nowadays it's a very small proportion of land that the Palestinian Arab population have access to because of 
uh, constant land theft and ethnic cleansing over the years. The other one is the war crimes, the question of justice. And the third one is the rights of the refugees. So dismantling apartheid doesn't mean the question of refugees has been settled at all. Where the Israelis have been promoting the idea that any Jewish person around the world, wherever they, wherever their family comes from, has a right to come to this Israeli regime. But the reverse is applied to Palestinians, you know. So you have no, you have no right to return of the Palestinians now. So that's one of the questions of dismantling the apartheid state has to extend to those questions. And this group in Lebanon promotes that idea, and they had an event which I was invited to, which was they were giving the title of ambassadors of the right to return to a number of prominent people around the world who had prominence in their own in their own communities. For example, one of the grandsons of Nelson Mandela was there. The, the daughter of Che Guevara was there. One of the great-grandsons of Mahatma Gandhi from India was there. And they were making them ambassadors for the right to return. So once again, promoting uh, in a civil society group the idea of the the right of Palestinian people to return to their home. Of course, there are many millions of Palestinians in the diaspora these days. And um, this, this is a campaign which is in support of their right to return to their homeland, which will miss, which will require also some sort of um, land reform, a, a settlement in terms of land reform. You can't say that they're going to kick out all of the, the Jewish immigrant families that have gone to Palestine, but there has to be some sort of land justice as well. It's a big issue, that. isn't it? Very big issue. I support that campaign. You know, I think it's an important campaign. I've attended a number of their events in Lebanon. There was an event in Iraq also last year. You know, so I'll support that campaign because I support the the idea of a, a liberated Palestine. But a liberated Palestine has a number of elements which people may not be aware of at first glance. You know, basically, um, there are the land question is a huge one. The the refugee question is a huge one. The way in which uh, apartheid will be dismantled is is still quite uncertain, but there are a number of features that are worth focusing on because if we look at the way racial regimes have been dismantled in the past, in Zimbabwe and in South Africa, for example, it left a, a number of serious problems, and I think Palestinians can anticipate that looking into the future, looking forward to the actual dismantling of this of this apartheid regime because even now you have a very large number of people who not just um, not just Jewish people but Zion, people who are actually Zionists who are very upset with the current government. You see there's a lot of turmoil inside the Israeli regime at the moment and it's largely the liberal Zionists, the liberal Jews who are very upset and reacting against the, the regime led by Netanyahu now for a range of different reasons of how they want the system to be changed there too and, and they will have a fair amount of influence when it comes to dismantling that regime. So it's important that the Palestinian side of things is aware of some of the, uh, the compromises that were made in South Africa and Zimbabwe. So the, uh, the, the refugee conference, that in both conferences, by the way, the Jama conference and, and the, the refugee conference, there were, there were Palestinian representatives there. There was a huge cultural display. There were children's choirs. In the, in, it was more or less investing these ambassadors, that, that particular event. But there were large number of particularly young people who are residents in these in these camps in in Borjobrajne and other parts of southern Beirut. You're talking about Beirut. People have been there for over 70 years. How many generations? Yet they're determined to keep on fighting. Yeah, no, that's right. They have a very strong sense of identity, and it's 
supported by groups like this, but also by some independent states like Iran and Syria. People may not understand, but Iran is really, really the major supporter, financial supporter of the Palestinian resistance and the Palestinian diaspora. They've been incredibly good in, in supporting the, the Palestinian struggle, very, very committed, including with this idea of Al-Quds Day. You know, every year, every Ramadan, they have a day dedicated to Palestine, the liberation of Palestine. And this is one of the main reasons why, probably the main reason why the US and the Israelis demonize Iran so much and run all these different campaigns against Iran precisely because of the role of the Palestinian struggle. Uh, Lebanon, for all its problems, it does serve in many ways as an organizing hub. There are important um, groups there that, that carry on this struggle in support of the, the people who resist around the world, who, who resist, as I, as I think of it myself, we are in a post-colonial world in many respects, but there are still many uh, important questions and struggles of self-determination and resistance, despite the fact that we supposedly are past the colonial era. The colonization of Palestine is really a very traditional one in many respects. You have a bunch of European people who've come and effectively you know, claimed with a racial theory that it's theirs, and that racial theory is the basis for uh, racial massacres and ethnic cleansing. And I've been speaking with Dr. Tim Anderson about his recent visit to Lebanon. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. There can be little doubt that time is running out for Julian Assange. But those who have supported him throughout the past two decades continue to work tirelessly for the ending of his incarceration and that of the threat of a very uncertain future in the US. I spoke with one of those supporters at the weekend, activist and broadcaster, Jacob Gregg. Jacob, there's been a, a really long fight by, unfortunately, only a small number of people at this stage in the campaign to ensure that Julian Assange does not end up in the United States, and we all know what that means. Let's call a spade a spade. It'll kill him. It'll kill him. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the way it's been. And, like, it's a bit of a strange one because we came from the point about five years ago when he was um, arrested in the embassy to where no one wanted to talk about it. Your average punter in the street, and dare I say it, even your average lefty, didn't give two hoots. And at, at best, I mean, a lot of people were saying he deserved everything he got. And we've got that now to a point where the news has got out. People know more of the story. And I guess the starting point, at least in Australia and the United Kingdom, of the average person on the street is that he should be released immediately. And that's now got to the point where even the Prime Minister has said that. Various Labor ministers, even and I think Peter Dutton has come out in support of the idea that enough is enough. However, the wheels of justice, as they say, um, turn slowly, not only slowly, but often in the wrong direction. At the moment, I believe Assange's legal team um, have just, I'm not sure what's happened, they've just submitted a second appeal. He was um, denied 
an appeal on the 8th of June. So we're waiting on that one, but not a lot of people are holding out much hope. His legal team's done a great job, so haven't they? Oh, look, if nothing else, the legal question about Julian Assange is setting precedence in British justice about extradition, about the right to publish, about what constitutes a journalist, about what is political, what isn't political. It's a whole body of case law which is going to be used for a long time. Now, that's that in itself is no help to Julian, but hopefully, if nothing else, all these legal, all, all the legal arguments have made will make it very bloody hard for them to try to pull a stunt like this again. They've done a remarkable job. We got the best. He's got the best lawyers in the world. Seriously, working for him, you know, from um, including, of course, um, Australian Jen Robinson and Gareth Pearce, who was instrumental in getting the the Guildford Four and I think the Birmingham Six off trumped up charges for him. And have done a remarkable job. And it's only, it takes the whole weight of the US empire to work against them. And it's not just the US empire, it's the collusion of Sweden. Of course, Sweden played a major role in it. When I said to you, that's why I said the US empire rather than just the US because I I put Australia firmly in the position of being a, a sub-imperial power to the United States. But um, and more and more the UK is looking the same and particularly since they left Europe and sought another alliance with AUKUS. But Sweden was reprehensible, not just with Julian. I mean, what they did with Julian was using, I guess you could say, using international law where it was never meant to be used, you know, issuing a red card for something that they that had already been thrown out of court, saying he is, is absconded when he turned himself into the Swedish police, placing charges on him against the wishes of the the alleged victim. It's, it was just ridiculous what they did and then held it up and held it up, not wanting to interview him by video phone, refusing to come to the UK to, video, to interview him. They just, nothing short of extradition was going to work for the Swedes because they were working for the US. And they'd done the same, of course. Sweden extradited people. Um, Sweden was one of the one of the stops the US used to extradite people to Guantanamo and down to a, a secret um, holding facility, CIA holding facility in Egypt. So it was no surprise that Sweden was used as a staging point for this, this what would you call it, abduction. And on the other hand, you have the Ecuadorian government and the role they paid and the price they paid. Yeah, well, originally the Ecuadorian government, Carrera, he, he was behind Julian the whole way. And part of that was because he knew it was right. Well, 90% of it was he knew it was right. But also he opposed the United States imposing its will on the rest of the world. Um, unfortunately, his um, successor turned the tables completely made a deal with the United States, took a whole lot of U.S. money 
and also did things not just like through Julian out of the embassy, but allowed United States troops to base themselves in Ecuador, which was another huge, um, uh, what's the word, a huge plank of Korea's policy not to allow U.S. troops or any troops to be based in Ecuador. So the Ecuador played a, a terrific role to start with and then, uh, well, let's just say a less than salubrious role when they invited the British police into the embassy to uh, to arrest Julian, which was unprecedented, uh, inviting police into an embassy. Is it too much to say that the Ecuadorian government lost their power because of Julian, Korea's government? He was a significant contributing factor. I'd say rather than because of Julian, I'd say it's because Korea refused to bow to US demands, whether it be about Julian, whether it be about military bases, whether it be about troop movements, whether it be about who they recognise and who they don't recognise in the United Nations. He just stood firm against the United States and did what he believed was right every step of the way. And Julian was one of those steps. Nothing the US hates more than an independent country. The work that his family have done over these years? Oh, oh sure, yeah, yeah. His, his family have... Well, you can only imagine what it must be like for them. You can only imagine what it must be like for them. But they've stood firm, they've stood behind him, they've done what they could. Part of the way that the... I guess the mainstream narrative was changed on Julian was through the work of his family, absolutely. And particularly Stella. Stella, just like uh, last month, was it last month? Or, yeah, it was last month in May. She was in Australia and she gave a great speech in Sydney and she's just been as firm as you'd hope her to be. And for you personally, Jacob, you knew Julian many years ago. Briefly, yeah. Oh well, look, he was getting around, getting around the fringes of the the left. Not so much the left as the anti-authoritarian movement. He'd come to trades hall once or twice to the bookshop to talk about politics, and I ran into I ran into him there, and um, was aware of some of the earlier things he'd done, like. Um, I remember we um, had a yarn about how in 19, I think it was 91, we we heard that someone had um, hacked into a, or broken into a Canadian arms manufacturing company and the thrill I felt when we found out it was an Australian. But yeah, not much, you know, I won't say he was a close personal mate or anything like that, but he was a, another person hanging around the fringe of the, the left and the protest movement in Melbourne um, who looked like he was going to go go along and do big things, which obviously he did. It's not looking good at the moment. It's not looking good at the moment, though he still has... There, there are still a couple of cards to play. Okay, like, first of all, the US, the CIA, used the Spanish... Um, spy firm to send information direct to the CIA. Now, that was found out, and Spanish police, once they found it out, did not disclose that evidence in a in the court in Madrid. 
legal teams working on the Spanish court in Madrid against the police for not disclosing that evidence because if they did disclose that evidence, then it would have changed the um, outcome of the of the British trial. Okay, but in the in the first trial in London, they couldn't use that because it wasn't disclosed and it went to court in Spain and that wasn't said. So there's still a point that that might happen. Kristen, the editor-in-chief, Kristen Heftenson, published those, um, what would you call them, screenshots of the information that, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the security firm, UC Global, just escaped me, and was sending stuff to the CIA. So that's in the public. They can't deny that. And under British law, non-disclosure has resulted in throwing quashing of convictions and um, the accused people let free, like um, Ratcliffe and Drax, environmental activists, who were let free because the the courts withheld evidence that there was an undercover officer, Mark Kennedy, the one who the underground undercover book was written about, was um, involved in the actions. The Guildford Four um, was quashed as well because the police had withheld the evidence that they knew they were innocent. So the the very fact that the British court is now withholding evidence, or the Spanish court withheld evidence, that the UK is also withholding evidence because they now know it's true, could result in the mistrial. The other things we've got are, I've got me little briefing notes here, the European Court of Human Rights haven't finished their hearing yet, and they're, and they're being pressed to, to issue an injunction so that the extradition can't go ahead. And then the other option, of course, is always a political solution, which Jennifer Robinson is arguing for, suggesting that US and Australia agree on, a, I guess, a deal that takes into account the time served by Assange in Belmarsh Prison, and even recognised at the time he was in the Ecuadorian embassy was a denial of his liberty. So it's not over yet, but maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the cold weather. I haven't seen the sun for days, but it's not looking good, mate. Just like to finish, Jacob, talking about the newspapers and publications who I would say have turned their back on Julian after making money out of what he gave to them. Oh, they made a mozza. The, the amount of ads they run while they were running all the all the collateral murder stuff and all the um, the embassy cables, they would have made a mozza during that time, mate. A few final words? Yeah, look, while it's, it's hard to have hope, and those of us who have been working on the campaign for some time have had our hopes raised and dashed so many times that it's almost like a little act of self-preservation to not hold out too much hope. The bottom line is that the hope is still there and it's up to, look, at this point, Albanese needs to pick up the phone. He needs, he's, he says he's working behind the scenes, but the Australian government has a good record of working in front of the scenes when it's countries like Egypt or China or Iran or Vietnam of getting Australian citizens out of unjust prison terms 
the Australian government needs to, on the one hand, treat the United States at the very least as any other country, not like they've got any kind of US exceptionalism. That's at the least. And at the most, call on the fact that they are our AUKUS partners, they are our major foreign relation, they're our major diplomatic partner in the world, and if they can't do this for us, then maybe we shouldn't be doing so much for them. Thanks, Jacob. Okay, thanks, mate. And as I said in the introduction, Jacob Gregg is one of those who has worked tirelessly for Julian over many, many years. And you can hear more of Jacob Gregg here on 3CR every Friday afternoon at 5 o'clock with a Friday rave. Hi, we're from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. On Saturday the 24th of June, a musical event will be held at The Howler, a converted warehouse in Dawson Street, Brunswick, to raise funds for the Refugee Action Collective, Rock for Refugee Rights. To find out more, I spoke with activist with RAC, Tom Freebig. Tom, when we speak of refugees, Australia has a history of cruel treatment, whether or not refugees have reached our shores. A large group which is hidden from Australian eyes are those in migration centres and other places in Indonesia. One estimate I saw was that there's almost 14,000 refugees and asylum seekers trapped there where the impact of Australia's border policies continue to reverberate. Are those figures that you can substantiate? I'm actually unsure how many refugees are there due to the policies of the Australian government, but it's, it's clearly in the, in the hundreds and thousands. There's about 14,000 refugees in Indonesia that have been there for some 10 years or even, even longer since Australian government's ban on accepting uh, refugees from Indonesia uh, under the former Liberal government. So about a, a large proportion of those are refugees from um, Afghanistan, but there's also a large minority of refugees also from Sudan who are fleeing the current civil war that's, that's happening there, as well as other demographics. And as you were saying, they are living in really... Uh, dire conditions there. They're not allowed to to work there. They don't have any access to welfare or support. So essentially they're living in in poverty and limbo for years on end. Has the Australian government accepted any of them over the years? The Australian government has has had a ban on, on accepting UNHCR refugees from Indonesia. So there may be few individuals but, but in general, as far as I'm aware, no refugees from, from Indonesia who have um, been registered with the UNHCR in Indonesia have, have actually made it to Australia. And the present Labor government has accepted that policy? The present Labor government has continued that policy. In the Labor Party platform, it has a commitment to uh, positively take steps to, to consider refugees uh, in Indonesia, but we haven't seen uh, any action on that yet, um, and there's no indication that that will will actually 
change at all for the refugees that are there. How many people are now forced to live in PNG, even though they're not in a concentration camp, they're in PNG against their will? Do you know how many? Sometimes the refugees that are in Australia's former offshore detention centres, those numbers are slowly decreasing as, as refugees either have been getting resettlement overseas, but this has been happening at a far too slow uh, rate. So at, at the moment, in terms of refugees that are, that are in Nauru and PNG, those numbers are, are quite small, but there's still people there and they should have the right to, to permanently resettle in, in Australia. And in a sense, I suppose New Zealand has shamed Australia by taking some of those refugees and they've settled in New Zealand very well. Mm, so the, New Zealand has taken some refugees, but even with the New Zealand deal, that, that is something that uh, they were meant to take 150 refugees and that was uh, a year over over four four years, I believe. That's also been very, very slow, but no, that's absolutely correct. New Zealand has also been shaming Australia. Where we've seen the big, biggest changes, the, the reason why now the offshore detention centres have less refugees and why we've seen uh, limited, I guess, changes for, for refugees in regards to refugees on temporary protection visas, of which there are 19,000 now being on a path to, to permanent visas, is, I think, um, due to the massive social movement and, and protests that happened around the, the hotels and under the Morrison government, which also put, put Labour on a bit of, bit of pressure to try to actually relate to that growing uh, pro-refugee sentiment. So that's where a lot of that, where the, the Medivac bill came in and where those Medivac evacuations and then as well as the freeing of the refugees from the hotels, the next big thing will be a fight for uh, permanent visas for all refugees, not just refugees on temporary pr- protection visas, but, but around the other 12 or 12,000 on bridging visas. At the same time, the, the infrastructure of offshore detention is, is still existing. So even if the offshore detention is completely emptied, the government has put in another couple hundred million dollars into actually maintaining that infrastructure just in case boats do start, that they have somewhere that they can continue the, the system of indefinite detention and, and torture of, of refugees. So it's very much a, um, still a lot. The refugee movement has, has to fight for, and that's, that's one of the tasks of groups like the Refugee Action Collective and actually educating people around what, what's actually the situation of, of refugees both onshore in precarious situations of poverty-inducing bridging visas, um, as well as refugees who are still, the numbers of refugees that are still in, in offshore, as well as the 14,000 in, in Indonesia. And then there's also a cohort of refugees who are still in detention uh, in Australia as, as well. So that's, uh, part of that is uh, Section 501. But then there's also um, another uh, Medivac refugee in Brisbane Immigration uh, Detention Centre uh, as well, who uh, hasn't been released like many of the other Medivac refugees. So there's a lot of lots still to, to fight for. What's the Section 501? So Section 501 is, is uh, basically any non 
citizens who have either had a criminal conviction or criminal, criminal charge with a sentence of over possible sentence of over 12 months or they've had their visa cancelled on character grounds and so in that situation so whether whether immigration minister says oh you've associated with the wrong kinds of people or you can even have your uh, visa cancelled if you've made attempts to flee detention or to, to escape from from detention then you you become a section 501 and you, you are able to be indefinitely detained in onshore uh, detention centers awaiting deportation back to wherever your so-called home country is so there's a section that includes prominent cohort of people from New Zealand but also uh, elsewhere uh, who were born in other places in our region but also a cohort of refugees are amongst that as well Tell me the difference between a temporary visa and a bridging visa. Bridging visa, the the kind of duration of time will vary, but often refugees are on these six-month bridging visas that restrict their their right to work, right to receive welfare, their right to study. Temporary protection visas are are also unfair and discriminatory, but the, the situation for refugees on bridging visas is significantly worse and they're significantly more at risk of potentially being having their bridging visa cancelled or not re- renewed and then being um, either on no visa or, or deported. Take you back when the family, the Tamil family, who had been living in Biloela were mm-hmm. finally allowed to go back home a great lot of publicity, and I believe the Labor Party got a lot out of that, but what do you believe they've done since? So I think Labor really rode into the last federal election trying to appeal to a, a more positive kind of public sentiment towards refugees, and they used the, the Bill Wheeler family um, as a way to kind of uh, relate to that, but then also to, I think, obscure some of their fundamental commitments still to the Operation Sovereign Borders and the politics of offshore detention and, and, and deterrence. And so they have maintained and, and taken steps to fulfill their commitment to giving um, refugees on, on temporary visas permanency, which I think is, is significant, is massively significant for those that uh, population of of refugees, but at the same time they've they've left a massive cohort of refugees behind. And unfortunately, a lot of the refugee movement I think did have some illusions in Labour as well around what would change under Labour. That hasn't been the case in the Refugee Action Collective, and it certainly hasn't been the case for refugee communities who've never stopped mobilising around permanency for all and an end to the operations of borders. But certainly not that much has fundamentally changed in terms of how Australia controls its borders and treats refugees who, who come by boat. And, of course, it's the people, again, who are kept out of the public eye and that's those who travel in a boat to come to Australia mainly, I believe, but maybe not so much so from Sri Lanka, they are found by 
Australian authorities and sent back to Sri Lanka to a very uncertain future. I think that actually really revealed that that kind of contradiction and that, that laid the fundamental commitment to those policies when on the night of, of the election they actually returned a, a refugee boat, Tamil asylum seekers, back to, to Sri Lanka where there, there's been an ongoing um, Tamil genocide at the hands of the Rajapaksan um, government. And so that definitely needs to be exposed. And uh, we need to continue building the protest movements on, on the street because that's where, under Morrison, we saw those really significant, small but significant wins in terms of freeing the refugees in the hotels and, and so on. What are the main foci now for Refugee Action Collective? Next event that Refugee Action Collective has coming up is a Rock for Refugee Rights gig, June 24, subtitled End the Racist Policies, Welcome Refugees. Having a whole bunch of really good bands, pro-refugee bands, Ajakwai, Jolistics, Jack Parsons from The Pretty Littles, Belly Savellas and Riff Raff Radical Marching Band, as well as refugee speakers and activist speakers. It is at the Howler in Brunswick on uh, June 24, doors opening at 7.30, so you can find those uh, details online. Refugees attend for free, and student prices are $33, and general admission is $38. Um, essentially, it's a night where we, to, to educate the general public in a, in a more in a fun and, and accessible way about what's happening for refugees. And then we're also trying to promote rally on July 22, which is the weekend um, after the 10-year anniversary of, of Kevin Wright announcing that no asylum seeker who arrived by boat would be resettled in Australia. Really important rallies as well, where we're calling for an end to offshore processing, um, we're calling for resettlement for the refugees trapped in Indonesia, and we're calling for permanent visas uh, for all. And we're also looking for lots of in- endorsements from different organizations for that uh, rally as well, because we want that to be as, as big and as broad as possible. Do you need to book for the night on the 24th? So for the 24th, you can get tickets on the night, but you can also book in advance via moshticks.com.au. Which street in Brunswick is it in? Our gig is, will be held at Howler uh, in Brunswick, which is on 711 Dawson Street in Brunswick, and that's really close to the uh, train station as well. Good. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. And put that date and venue in your diary, the 24th of June at number 7, Dawson Street, Brunswick. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Wondering how to pay your donation to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash or card. 
or simply post your check or money order to P.O. Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Stay radical.